Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this event uh, organized uh, through the London School of Economics and uh, LSE Ideas. Uh, welcome to you all, and also welcome uh, to the BBC, who will be filming uh, this event. Uh, just the event, not the questions or the answers. Uh, so welcome to the BBC, and uh, we'll let you know when it, when it is televised. Uh, shortly after the election, I suppose. But anyway. um, first, first, let you know who I am. Uh, my name is Professor Michael Cox. Um, I joined the LSE in 2002 to the Department of International Relations. I'm now Emeritus Professor and also Director of LSE Ideas, a research center here on foreign policy and also a, a think tank. Um, first, an announcement. Uh, one of our panelists, um, you may have gathered from the names behind you uh, for this evening, Margaret McMillan, unfortunately has been taken ill and is unable to be with us here this evening. I'm very sorry, but she sends her sincerest apologies, and I think it would be very nice if we all sent her our best wishes for a speedy recovery. Uh, but the show, as they say, must go on. And so welcome to you all to this roundtable discussion on the pivotal lessons from Versailles from 1919 to 2019. As we will find out this evening, and as I'm sure most of you already know, the treaty itself was signed in June uh, of uh, 1919, 100 years ago. And ever since that peace treaty was signed, and many other peace treaties besides, because it wasn't just the only one signed with Germany, there has been an enormous debate about what happened in Paris uh, over those six months or more. And that debate still goes on amongst historians. But nearly everything um, that has been said, or most of what has been said about those six rather crucial months, has been written in the shadow uh, of one book, I think. And that book, of course, is John Maynard Keynes's The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Two years ago, I was asked to write an introduction to the book I thought it would be easy. It wasn't. Uh, I was delighted and felt honored to do the writing of it. I thought it would be a short job, but like most academics, I found out it was a very big job. Anyway, it turned out to be one of the most challenging and rewarding things I have ever done. I don't want to be too commercial, but the book is on sale here tonight. <laughs> P please feel moved to buy a copy. I will even sign it for you. And I'm afraid that John Maynard Keynes won't be able to do the signing this evening. So you'll have to take me instead. But I've written a fairly lengthy introduction to it. Not as long as the book itself, you may say, thank goodness. Uh, I won't say what is in the introduction, but basically what I try and do is three things, which I hope relate to the panel we're going to have tonight. First, explain why Keynes wrote the kind of book he did following a terrible war, and what Keynes then saw as a deeply flawed peace. Why the book, in turn, had such an impact at the time and continued to be so intensely debated thereafter. And why some people, at least, have admired the book and think it contains all sorts of important lessons, but why many others um, don't like the book at all believing that Keynes just got Paris badly wrong. Many historians, I think, say that. 
But if there's no consensus about the book, and there shouldn't be because it's a very highly controversial book written in a very highly controversial and polemical way, and that was his intention, uh, there is agreement about what followed. The book became an overnight publishing sensation. Uh, which went on to sell tens of thousands of copies, 40,000 in the United States alone. And, of course, it was translated into the better part of 15 languages uh, around the world. It was, in, by any stretch of the imagination, as I say, a, a publishing sensation, which I think in turn not only had an historiographical consequence or an impact on how people then look back on the peace treaty itself, but also I think had an enormous impact on the interwar politics itself as well. It, was, it has historical significance, not just academic or intellectual significance. If there's great division about the book itself, one thing we can agree on, it changed Keynes's life as well. Before the book, for those of you who have read Robert Skidelsky's marvelous biography, before the book was published in December 1919, he got it out, by the way, in six months. Well done, publishers. It was Macmillan, by the way. Before he got the book out, Keynes was very much an insider's insider. He was known at Cambridge, obviously. That was his adored home. He was known amongst his friends, largely became the Bloomsbury set. He was known in the Treasury, and of course it was through the war on the Treasury that he worked. He worked on inter-allied debt for the whole period of the war between 1915 and 1919 when the war came to an end. That was his job, moving millions around, and he knew a lot about where the money was and who got what, when and where, and then was appointed, as I'm sure many of you know, to become an advisor to the British government, which he did uh, in January of 1919, and of course finally resigned. But the book itself not only changed the way I think many people think about Versailles, one way or another, it also changed his own life. And after its appearance, he went on to become not the insider's insider, but one of the most significant public intellectuals of his day, and indeed one of the great policy advisors of the 20th century, right down, of course, until his uh, premature death um, at the end of the Second World War. Now, to debate all this and much more besides, we have lined up three other uh, outstanding talents who will each speak for about 15 minutes. First, uh, David Stevenson, uh, Professor of International History here at the school, the Stevenson Professor, and a world expert on World War I uh, and, and its aftermath, and David will go first. This will be followed by Professor Linda Yu, who has written on many things about Asia, China, but most recently, and I now think it's gone into paperback, Linda, a most excellent study called The Great Economists and How Their Ideas Can Help Us Today, and certainly would need it. But that also contains a chapter on Keynes and his impact in the interwar years, and that is what Linda will be speaking about. And last, and I'm bound to say by no means least, uh, Professor Barry Buzan, of the LSE, an old friend I've worked with here in both in the IR department and in ideas, who will, I think, ask whether or not we need now to think beyond these minor events like the First World War and the Versailles Peace Treaty and look at the wider shifts and trends which create what we call today the modern world. And I hope, Barry, you're going to be as provocative as I think you're bound to be. So, with no further ado, I want to put our hands together and welcome David Stevenson to speak on the Versailles Peace Treaty. So this, this is the scene on Saturday 28th of June 1919, and I, I think it is registering now on the mic. 
Um, it's a rugby scrum, and that's what it felt like at the time, particularly for the German delegates who are in the middle of that mass of humanity signing the actual peace treaty. And it's signed, of course, famously in the Hall of Mirrors, uh, the Galerie des Glaces at the Palace of Versailles, the same place where the, treaty, where the German Empire had been proclaimed in 1871 after the previous Franco-German War, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 71. So we have this. And what I want to do is to trace the connections between what happened on the 28th of June 1919 with what happened on the 11th of November 1918, which was a Monday, seven months before. Here is the scene in the railway carriage, um, 82149D, the Compagnie Compagnie Internationale des Wagons-Lis, the railway dining car where the ceasefire was signed that ended the First World War on the Western Front. The same railway carriage, of course, as was going to be used for the signature of the ceasefire in 1940. Mm. Symbolic. Keynes was well aware of this symbolism. He satirized it when he talks in the economic consequences of the peace of the history of Europe between the mid-19th century and mid-20th century as being dominated by a perpetual prize fight. That's the phrase he uses between the French and Germans, of which the round that had ended in 1919 certainly felt Keynes, the French Premier Georges Clemenceau, did not expect that to be the last round. And, of course, Clemenceau had personal memories of the previous round when he'd been mayor of Montmartre in northern Paris at the time of the Prussian siege of 1870-71. Anyway, my initial brief was to link together the peace treaty with the way in which the First World War ended I'm actually going to expand it a bit because Margaret McMillan isn't going to be here tonight to say a little bit about the peace conference itself. But my primary focus is on the legacy that was handed over to the peacemakers and a very difficult legacy from the experience of the war and particularly the way in which the First World War ended. As I'm I'm sure other speakers will say, um, the Treaty of Versailles has, to put it mildly, had a bad press. The First World War, example of how not to fight a war, the Treaty of Versailles and the Paris Peace Conference as examples of how not to fight, not to make a peace. The armistice is often misunderstood. The story that leads to it is of a German request to a ceasefire and an Allied and, Ameri- and, an Allied and American decision to grant a ceasefire. Both decisions are difficult to explain. But if we start on the German side, we need to start with this man, Erich Ludendorff, who was the first quartermaster general of the German armed forces. And this is the driving force in the German military and political establishment by the autumn of 1918. He's a man of whom the Kaiser Wilhelm II is afraid, and he's a man who is the dominating element in the partnership with the chief of the general staff and effective commander of the German army, Paul von Hindenburg. So the story of the ceasefire begins with Ludendorff's nervous breakdown on the 28th of September 1918. And what precipitated that breakdown was the news that Bulgaria, Germany's smallest and weakest ally, had surrendered. But the reason why that has such a shock effect is that it combines with a general crisis on the Western Front in France and northern Belgium, where the Germans have repeatedly attacked between March and July of 1918 and been unsuccessful and are now being driven back by the Allies. They're nowhere back to German territory They're still occupying French and Belgian territory, and in the east they're occupying huge areas of Russian territory, former Tsarist Russian territory. So the situation at one level is not that the present is hopeless, but that the future is hopeless. 
There is now no way in which the German army can win the war, either by attacking or by defending. And that creates the danger that if the war carries on into 1919, German territory will be invaded. And not only that, but Ludendorff's worst nightmare is that the German army will disintegrate. It will become what he describes as a militia, which is no longer able to keep order at home when the predictable blowback domestically, politically follows from the evident sign that the war is defeat, that the war is lost. So in the light of all of that, Ludendorff embarks on an exercise of damage limitation in which he is able to uh, sign up the German political authorities and the Kaiser for this process, ending the war before it has actually ended in catastrophe, ending the war when the German army still appears to be very successful, and ending the war on a compromise basis by carrying through um, a stage-managed democratization within Germany, but appealing not to the Allies as a whole, but to the American president, Woodrow Wilson, and asking Wilson to arrange a ceasefire as a prelude to a peace based on the 14 points. Here is President Wilson giving the 14 points address to Congress on the 8th of January 1918, deliberately intended to be a moderate, democratic, liberal peace and intended to distance American objectives from those of America's wartime partners, Britain and France, and Italy indeed, whom Wilson distrusted as imperialists. So this is the 14 points program. This is the basis on which Germany requests a peace, had rejected it back in January, but is now willing to accept it because of German military setbacks in the meantime. So what happens in the armistice and negotiations which go on in public between October and November 1918 is that the president, first of all, accepts in principle that he will offer such a peace to the Germans and secondly signs up the British and French and Italians for that peace as well. The political element of the ceasefire is an agreement by all sides to make a treaty on the basis of the 14 points and the Americans even describe this subsequently as an armistice contract. Yeah? And this contract includes point 14, which is the League of Nations. There is also a military technical element to the armistice. That is the document that's signed at the railway carriage on that misty Monday morning on the 11th of November 1918 at 5am. What the military and technical arrangements provide is something rather different. On the Navy, as far as that's concerned, at sea, all of Germany's submarines and most of its most modern fleets will be handed over to a neutral country and then beyond that, if necessary, to the Allies. They end up, of course, at Scapa Flow in the Orkneys under British control. On land, um, you can see on the map, hopefully, I don't know if there's a pointer on here. Anyway, you can see a broken red line, hopefully, a, a solid red line, and then to the right of it, a broken red line, which is where the Allies' armies are as of the 11th of November 1918. And then on the right of the map, you can see the blue bridgeheads across the River Rhine, which they are able to advance up to and occupy. The point of the armistice as regards boots on the ground is that the French army is placed in control of Alsace-Lorraine, the provinces it had lost in 1871. The British are placed in control of Belgium, which is of vital strategic as well as political and psychological significance for them. The Allies the, uh, uh, secure the German evacuation of the left bank of the Rhine, so the area up to the river comes under our military occupation. And Russia, the Russian territories which Germans have occupied in the east have to be abandoned. The Italians simply, similarly get control of the territory in the Alps and the Adriatic on which they had designs. So there is, as we would now say, a disconnect between the political provisions of the armistice, which are, if you like, a moderate and reflect American concerns, and the military and naval provisions, which reflect the British and French and uh, Italian European concerns. 
how it will pan out between those two potentially conflicting objectives will depend on what happens at the peace conference. And it will also depend to an extent on what happens in Germany. Here is the scene in front of the Reichstag building on the 9th of November, so two days before the armistice goes into effect um, with the um, revolution in Germany and the German Emperor Wilhelm II going into exile in Holland. An ambiguous event, because what happens within Germany is a moderate socialist government comes to power, but it's an incomplete revolution. The question is still unclear whether this will be the first stage that leads Germany towards integration into the Atlantic camp of the Atlantic democracies, whether it will lead, on the other hand, towards some kind of socialist regime, extreme socialist regime along the lines of Soviet Russia, or whether it will lead to a nationalist reaction. All of those things are unclear and all appear at the time to be possibilities for the future of Germany. So the armistice is signed in a time of maximum uncertainty. And one thing I do want to stress, perhaps, about the timing of the German Revolution is that it happens after Germany has publicly requested a ceasefire. The revolution follows the defeat. The revolution does not cause the defeat. Though that, of course, is what was alleged by the German right and the Nazis and Adolf Hitler among them. Which means that by the end of 1918, by December, the German press is already conveying or perpetrating and perpetuating the Dolkstoss legenda, the stab in the back myth, which you see here in the shape of a red Bolshevik stabbing in the back the heroic and undefeated German soldier. The way in which the war ended looked odd. It ended at a moment when the Germans are still have a string of military successes in the first part of 1918. Their armies are everywhere on enemy territory, and suddenly they ask for a ceasefire. This looks odd from the perspective of many people within Germany, and it creates a difficult situation. But the Allies were aware of this, and there was a very significant debate on the Allied camp about whether to agree to a ceasefire in November 1918. The American commander-in-chief, John Pershing, argued that it was premature, that they should drive on into Germany. The French Marshal Foch, who is the overall commander of the Allied armies, argued, on the other hand, that the war had done enough. The Allies had sufficient military superiority to be able to impose their terms on Germany. Carrying on into the spring of 1919 would mean, he said, the deaths of another 50,000 Frenchmen for political objectives which were at best uncertain. And that's the view which prevails. The Allied and British and American leaders accept that judgment by Foch rather than the Pershing judgment. In a way, both were right. Foch was correct. Enough had been done to force the Germans to accept very difficult peace terms in June of 1919. Yet on the other hand, given the way in which the war ended, given it does not end with an Allied triumphal march through Berlin, this creates psychological conditions in which it's very, it even harder for the Germans voluntarily to accept their defeat and to comply with Allied terms without the continuing necessity for imposition of force to compel them to do so. So this is a difficult legacy for the peacemakers, and there are other legacies that are difficult about the way in which the war ends. One is the breakup of Germany's major ally, Austria-Hungary. You can see in red the line on the map here, hopefully. Those have been the borders in southern and eastern Europe which Austria-Hungary had occupied. It fragments, it splinters at the end of October and the beginning of November 1918 and is split eight different ways. Now, the Allies had encouraged that, but they hadn't essentially caused it, and they certainly couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So one of the situations they have to cope with as a given, in a way, is chaos in southeastern Europe, and also chaos in Eastern Europe in the former territories of the Tsarist Empire, where Lenin and Trotsky, of course, were in control by 1918. Here we see them 
Lenin haranguing the crowds and a suspicious-looking Trotsky down at the basement of the dais behind him. And this is a Russia in which the Allies had intervened in 1918 before the war had ended. The green zones to the north and south are the areas which are under Allied military presence and military operations. That continues into the post-armistice period, even though Germany has now evacuated that area. Allied troops remain there and in conflict with the Bolsheviks. So difficult legacies in southeastern Europe, chaos in much of the former Tsarist Empire, and actually a difficult legacy also in Asia-Pacific, because the problems that the peacemakers face are not just European, they are also global. In Asia, I could also mention the Middle East, but in Asia-Pacific, China and Japan are both allied countries. Japan had entered the war in 1914, China had entered in 1917. They are bitterly divided over the area known as the province of Shandong. You can probably hopefully see the port of Kiaochow there in northern China, of great strategic and significant and psychological and religious importance to the Chinese under Japanese occupation. The Japanese had taken it from the Germans in 1914. One of the big questions at the peace conference and one of the most bitterly divisive ones is are the Chinese or the Japanese going to keep that territory? Two points more. The armistice is important because of the way in which the war is important because of the way in which it had been paid for, or rather it had not been paid for. What we would now describe takes place as an intergenerational transfer, to use the jargon. In other words, the war is largely paid for by borrowing. Even in Britain, only about a sixth of the cost of the war is covered by taxation. In France and Germany, it's less. It's primarily paid for by borrowing from the Allied and the Germans' own peoples. In other words, the future, is, the future generations are going to be saddled with the cost of victory or in the German case with the cost of defeat. The Allies and British, French and British are also able to borrow from the United States and of course the American government that lends to them at interest borrows from its own public um, through the agency of the Liberty Bonds which this poster like many others is attempting to sell. So everybody, every government in the war is borrowing to pay for the war effort. How that war will actually be paid for and the real cost be redistributed, that too is left for the peacemakers. The final legacy of the armistice is just this. Tens of thousands dead here alone. This is Tyne Cot, the largest, ceremony, largest British Empire and Commonwealth Cemetery uh, to the east of the town of Ypres. Uh, tens of thousands of soldiers either buried here and identified by name on the headstones or they're not identified at all and simply inscribed on the mural wall at the back of the cemetery. The war had been justified and the enormous costs for many, many families, thousands and tens of thousands of families across Europe had been justified on the grounds that this was something that would not have to be done again. Absolute victory was necessary because only absolute victory could bring a permanent solution, a stable solution, so that the future generations of sons and grandsons would not have to go through what that generation had just experienced. So this is all, to put it mildly, a difficult legacy to be handed on to the peacemakers. Mm. Now, if I say a word about the peace conference itself, the peace conference meets very soon after the end of the war. So while all the things that I've described are still terribly, terribly current and terribly, terribly sensitive, it, meet, it assembles in January 1919 in Paris. By June of 1919, it has produced a peace treaty. In fact, it's produced a peace treaty by May, which is then imposed on the German delegation, and the signature ceremony happens in June. The first item on the agenda, which takes the peace conference from January to March, is the League of Nations. 
It's not until, the League of Na- until March that the League of Nations covenant has been settled. From the cartoon, you can see the American President Woodrow Wilson handing a rather large olive branch to a rather bemused dove of peace who is not quite sure what to do with it. What Wilson hoped was that if he could get the League of Nations accepted at the beginning, that would provide an element of security, of reassurance, which would get everybody to calm down not feel so insecure, not have to press such excessive claims. Beyond that, if you've got the League of Nations on the agenda and agree to start with, then he seems to have envisaged the conference could be some kind of seminar in which in a dispassionate way the hundreds of academics and economic advisors who he brought with him could thrash out the future of Europe and the world with the statesmen of the Allied leaders who he reminded his delegation when he was crossing the Atlantic that the statesmen you are about to meet do not represent their public. (laughs) Only he did. He felt he had public opinion on his side and he had economic pressure on his side. Now, of course, that is one of the expectations that turns out to be unfounded. The League of Nations does not provide the the sense of security that had been expected, does not make the task any easier, and in fact, it probably makes more complicated the negotiating process, which has to be done at tremendous speed by this agency. This is the Council of Four. This meets from March to June of 1919, and this is the key body that actually drafts the German peace treaty terms. So on the left, you have the Italian Prime Minister Orlando, uh, then going from left to right, David Lloyd George, the British Premier, Georges Clemenceau for France, and Woodrow Wilson for the United States. Uh, Orlando actually walks out at one of the crucial stages in the conference, so it's really the other three. It's a compromise between differing, very differing views about the German settlement, and I want to underline that. Wilson's expectation had been that the League of Nations would dominate the agenda. The others were thinking, or certainly the British delegation, were thinking in terms of a repeat of what had happened in 1814-15 at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, when the Allies had first agreed, the victorious Allies had first agreed on on their terms, desired terms, and then brought the French in, the defeated enemy, round the negotiating table. That seems to have been what was expected would happen in 1919 as well. The British delegation actually commissioned studies of what had happened at the Congress of Vienna in 1814, 1815. Um, But in fact, the Allies find it so difficult to agree amongst themselves that by May of 1919, they dare not bring the Germans in on an equal footing around the conference table because they rightly feared the Germans would use that to try to break up this precariously established Allied unity. This is why the treaty was and perhaps inevitably had to be a dictated treaty, a diktat, as the Germans call it. Now, it centers on three main issues, the German treaty, which is the Treaty of Versailles, which is signed in June of 1919. One is economics and reparations, on which Linda Yu will be speaking, and I don't want to say much about that, except that it's important. It's almost as important what's not in the peace treaty as what is in it, and the most important thing is they cannot agree on the sum that Germany actually owes. They can agree on the categories of damage for which compensation can be claimed. They cannot agree on the total sum. This is left and is eventually decided on a provisional basis two years later. But economics and reparations is the first thing. The second thing is German territory, which I'll show you a map later on. But the third thing, and perhaps the most important thing, is disarmament and security. One element of security is depriving the Germans of their armed forces, which I've shown you, well, I've shown you this curious picture um, of a British tank, actually, a captured British tank with iron crosses painted on it. 
the Germans were unable to develop an effective tank of their own. Their best tanks were actually captured from the British. But this is a captured British tank being demolished, being dismantled in Germany after the peace treaty. The Germans were not allowed tanks, not allowed military aviation, not allowed poison gas, not allowed general staff, not allowed submarines. If those treaty terms had been enforced, the disarmament terms, as for a while they were, it would have been impossible for Germany to start another major war, as Adolf Hitler recognized when he became German Chancellor in 1933. From then on, of course, the disarmament terms were not enforced. But that's one element of the security provisions. The second element is the occupation of the Rhineland. The key bargaining that struck at the conference is about the future of the Rhineland. What the French wanted was Rhineland to be separated from the rest of Germany and turned into buffer states under French occupation and control. The compromise that's reached is the Rhineland will be permanently demilitarized and not the Germans cannot fortify it or guarantee it, and it will be under Allied occupation for up to 15 years, perhaps even longer. In return for the French dropping their initial demand for political separation of the Rhineland, they get this security package and the promise of a British and American security guarantee against German attack. That guarantee fell through, of course, with much else when the American Senate failed to ratify the Treaty of Versailles and what was contained with it and the package that went with it. What I want to stress about the picture, though, is the date. It's 1930. French troops evacuating the Rhineland five years before they were obliged to under the terms of the treaty. In fact, under the terms of the treaty, they could have probably have stayed longer than 1935. The reason why I highlight that is that the debate about the Versailles Treaty has long been over whether it was too harsh or whether it was too soft. The prevailing view in this country, in the UK, not least, of course, by J, of J and John Maynard Keynes, was that it was too harsh. The prevailing view in France has been that it was too soft, unable to protect Europe and France against further aggression. Actually, I think it's truer to say that the treaty falls between two stools. There's a famous comment by the French royalist writer Jacques Bainville that the treaty is too harsh for what is in it that is gentle. Falls between two stools, or more precisely still, the treaty is much more flexible than it's usually given credit for. The Rhineland occupation could be much shorter than 10 years if Germany complied with the rest of the treaty terms. It could be longer than 15 years if it did not. In practice, the French troops evacuate five years earlier than they needed to do so. That underlines that everything will depend on how the treaty is implemented. Now, just to finish, three maps. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, March 1918. Mm. What would Germany have done if it had won the war? Well, the best evidence we have is the terms that it imposed on Soviet Russia. And under the terms of the treaty, the whole of the orange area on the map which had probably formerly been part of Tsarist Russia, that is no longer under Russian sovereignty. It doesn't come under German sovereignty, but it's turned into a network of buffer states under German and Austrian occupation and control. Um, those lost territories comprise about a quarter of Russia's population, though much of it is not ethnically Russian. About 35% of its grain-producing area, 26% of its iron and steel production. If the Germans had won the war, we have good reason to think that something similar would have been imposed in Western Europe. Compare this with Germany's territorial losses after 1919 under the terms of the Versailles Treaty. They are severe, but Germany loses about one-eighth of its territory and population, much of that also ethnically non-German, loses about 16% of its coal production, 13% of its territory, 12% of its population. Compare that with what Germany loses after 1945. Mm. 
It loses the eastern quarter of its territory to Soviet Russia and to Poland. The middle quarter of its territory comes under Soviet occupation and the East German regime for the next 40 years. Now, the implication of this, maybe what I'm saying, is that Keynes got it all wrong. Yeah? What happens in 1945 is a much harsher treaty than followed than what happened in 1919, and it ends in what most consider to be a much more stable settlement. Actually, this is not true. This is only part of the picture. The picture after 1945 is that the security and territorial elements of the settlement with Germany are tougher, much tougher. The economic elements of the settlement with Germany are much more generous. Think of the Marshall Plan. The combination of coercion and concession is what delivers the goods after 1945 with luck. This may mean that Keynes was right in what he was saying in the economic consequences of the peace, even though many historians now disagree and think that he got a lot of things wrong. What I would prefer to say is that he was right, but perhaps for the wrong reasons, and not for the reasons that he gave in the book. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, David. That's great. Setting the scene. And now Linda's going to give us maybe address some of those larger economic questions. Do you want to take these down? Thank you. Thank you very much, Mick. Um, and um, as an economist, I'm going to take a slightly different tack to looking at the lessons from Versailles um, from 1919 to 2019. So I'm going to break my comments really into two parts. I'm going to say a bit more upon jo about John Maynard Keynes, um, very ably introduced by both um, already, uh, by both speakers. And I think what I'll do then is set the stage for the uh, implications of the economic consequences of the peace for Keynes's influence um, in terms of shaping economic policy through the interwar period and then drawing some lessons for today. So, um, as Mick mentioned, um, I've written a book, and so I've looked at uh, actually the life of John Maynard Keynes. One of the fascinating things about him and his ideas is um, how he became influential. So, um, Mick already mentioned a, a quick introduction to Keynes was that his grandmother said he was always expected to be successful because he was, um, he was born to a Cambridge don and he spent his whole life at Cambridge University and that's what he expected his life to be. He did extremely well in school. He then went to Eton, did extremely well in Eton. He then went to Cambridge following his father and he did extremely well in Cambridge and then aha, he had his first obstacle. So, upon graduation, uh, he wanted to enter the civil service. Now, to enter the civil service, you have to take a series of exams. Um, he came in shock, horror, second <laughs> in his economics exam. So that meant um, he did not have his first choice of posts. Um, so he did not end up at the Treasury. That instead went to a talented classicist called Otto Niemeyer. So that meant Keynes ended up at the India office for two years, whereby he was extremely bored throughout his time. Now, there is a counterfactual that had he actually um, done very well and entered uh, the division, the department that he wanted, uh, he might have just settled um, comfortably and not have eventually gone back to Cambridge and started the Keynesian revolution. Um, and the story of Otto Neumeyer actually comes back because um, during the interwar years when uh, the Keynesian revolution was being um, developed, 
Guess who was his um, nemesis? His nemesis at the Treasury was Sir Otto Niemeyer, who was a neoclassical economist and did not believe that Keynes was right and that the economy always righted itself. And so therefore, we didn't need the kind of state intervention that Maynard Keynes was pushing um, throughout. So now let me back up, and how did Keynes become even involved um, in the First World War? So while he was trying to get into a plum job in the civil service, he actually got to know um, some of the people in the Treasury. And as the um, economy went into crisis at the start of the war, he was actually called to go into the Treasury as a special advisor. So in many ways, he actually came in actually at a better level um, and was very influential in terms of the way that he was um, – helping, as he thought at the time, devise the kinds of policies that would see a lasting peace. And so that was how Keynes, despite um, not having done that well in his civil service exams, ended up um, back influencing um, the war. But as we've already heard, um, Keynes' views are still today uh, being contested. And in, um, I'm going to come to the economic consequences of the piece um, for a moment um, in terms of the substance and the impact. But one of the things um, that I would probably stress as an economist who's looked at economic history is that standing back, you might think, um, and the Keynesian revolution would make you think this, that most of you here probably will have heard of the general theory, which is Keynes' seminal work that changed the subject um, significantly. However, his first most influential work, the one that really set the stage for not just his theories in the general theory, but actually his approach in terms of um, uh, promoting the Bretton Woods institutions after World War II, the IMF, the World Bank, a lot of that was actually rooted in the economic consequences of the peace. And actually, the thing I want to stress there is you can have lots of great ideas and just not be noticed. Um, I'm not thinking of any particular academics, but he had this, he had this influence because of uh, the way this piece of work was portrayed. So yes, a lot of it, as I say, is controversial, and a lot of it is about um, the unaffordability of the reparations um, on Germany. But his, I thought, um, his, Keynes always had a way with words. And one of the ways in which he made the book influential was that he didn't just throw a lot of numbers in there. There are a lot of numbers in there. <laughs> is that he also, and this is where the controversial part of the time came in, he also, um, he caricatured the leaders. And um, it was really um, his description of how these, that, um, that group of four that you saw a picture of, um, their mannerisms, how they were, how they might have been thinking, which were not particularly flattering or always flattering. And that actually what's caused, um, helped the economic consequences of the piece to become a bestseller uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So, Coming to the economic consequences of the piece, there is a quote that I'm just going to read you, a slightly truncated version that gives you a sense, I think, that captures Keynes's views on the piece that was negotiated. He said, quote, if France and Italy, abusing their momentary victorious power to destroy Germany and Austria-Hungary, now prostrate, they invite their own destruction also, being so deeply and intricately intertwined with their victims by hidden psychic and economic bonds. 
So that, I think, captures where um, Keynes stood in terms of um, the kind of system that he had hoped to see after World War I. Of course, he became extremely disillusioned with um, the Treaty of Versailles, and he felt this is why he wrote the book, to put his views forward. But this view that the victims and the victors were intricately intertwined is, of course, the running theme of the 20th century. So um, the League of Nations has already been mentioned, but if you look at the interwar years, and then certainly I mentioned the Bretton Woods institutions after World War II, it was the sense of internet, e economic interdependence um, that Keynes stress, which he didn't, um, he feels, see come to fruition in 1919, but then he continued to push. And there's a well, by the way, he usually was, like many economists engaged in public life, often disappointed because <laughs> um, Keynes had always pushed for greater uh, government spending. And even uh, during um, the great triumph of the New Deal in the United States in the interwar period, he was still disappointed America wasn't spending enough. Um, but the history from this treatise, this book, which began to set out this idea that even though um, the, they were, um, as it were, um, uh, the punishment of Germany and Austro-Hungary, which was part of the rhetoric at the time, was not the right way economically to look at what would bring about a lasting peace. And that theme takes you through, takes him, what well, built his reputation, which made him um, increasingly influential. And Keynes's views on this, if you look at the interwar years when he wrote uh, the general theory after the crash of 1929, um, began to become apparent. This idea that um, after really the big uh, interconnections that he already saw in the late 19th century, the globalization of that era, it led to a sense that if the global economy were to um, prosper and needed to recognize that even in defeat, you had to give a sense of economic um, ability for these nations to rebuild themselves. And of course, um, that did, in the 1930s, um, the Great Crash and the Great Depression pointed to the interdependencies among nations even more, um, because certainly um, the Great Crash of Wall Street um, spread, um, certainly to advanced economies. And Keynes's ideas, I've already mentioned, are pretty well known in terms of uh, the state um, intervening, because I mentioned he butted heads with his nemesis, um, who, despite um, Keynes's fame, um, the Treasury still were not receptive to his ideas in the 1930s, and they insisted the economy would right itself in the long run, to which Keynes gave his famous reply, which is, in the long run, we're all dead. And um, economists, as he also added, would be quite useless if all they did was to tell you uh, the storm had um, happened after it had passed. And that's the full quote, roughly speaking, of that phrase. So, um, but eventually, um, I mentioned Keynes's ideas um, began to um, permeate. And you really, I think, saw the interwar years rethinking economics. Um, and this um, led eventually, and I want to take us through to the 20th century, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it um, in the questions and answers as well. And it came more to fruition after World War II. And of course, Keynes laid the groundwork for what became known as really the first supranational 
organizations, the Bretton Woods institutions, that brought countries together to coordinate their economic policies. And of course, a lot of that had to do with the reconstruction of Europe, um, but it also had to do in the sense of the International Monetary Fund, creating a fund that could rescue countries, help them, so that if everybody was on a level um, economic footing or had a chance to rebuild, then you would end up with a more stable and peaceful system. So, um, and that idea, of course, um, began, that is the idea of the 20th century and the liberal world order that came from it was the sense that we were all interconnected and that countries, even though they, um, maybe for political terms and other reasons stand outside the fold in economic terms, um, bringing, bringing the linkages and connections were what mattered. And I think just quickly finishing on to today, the lessons that we would draw from Keynes um, mostly um, talk about state intervention and public investment, but I actually think it's this part of his legacy, which is much more worth noting, um, which is um, this idea um, that he began to develop in 19, throughout the, um, the First World War that then fed into um, his first significant work, um, which then laid the groundwork for the global system as we know it today. And of course, we have seen the World Trade Organization develop in the post-war period. We have seen um, a lot more regional development banks, and all of this is premised on this notion that economic linkages have to be strengthened even if you have political differences. And I'm sure we'll come to this, but taking it to today, 2019, thinking about um, countries that may, you may disagree with um, in terms of ideology or values, um, is there still a value to linking with them economically? And, um, and I think that plus I don't want to mention the B word, but I will, Brexit, <laughs> thinking about the ways in which um, agreements can be made so that all sides can prosper, I actually think is probably the bigger legacy from John Maynard Keynes, um, and more important, uh, as important as his work on uh, promoting the state in terms of um, the economy. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. So our first lecture gives us a, a detailed breakdown of the war, its consequences and its end, and how it was difficult to make the peace. Linda has now taken the narrative forward. Now hand over to Barry to re rethink uh, modernity and maybe to redirect our attention to something else. Barry, over to you. Well, thank you, Mick. Um, you've set me up here to be uh, the controversialist. I hope so. And uh, I'll do my best to wear that hat. Yeah, very pleased. Uh, it, it seems to me that over the last few years, all of these anniversaries from 1914 through to this year, endless numbers of uh, media folk and academics have been telling us how important the First World War was and how we've been living downstream from it and all of that uh, and that it shaped our lives, etc., etc. Um, well, I beg to differ. Um, so I'm going to try and make the case that, okay, the First World War was a fairly big event, but that in the longer historical perspective, it's a bit second order. Uh, and I'm building here on some arguments that uh, George Lawson, who some of you know, and I worked out a few years ago when we were thinking about benchmark dates. So what I want to do is to apply international relations theory to thinking about this problem, to look at the First World War 
in terms of its consequences and the kinds of changes it made in the light of what international relations theorists think of as being important changes. Um, and the, those tend to fall into two groups. There's material things like the distribution of power um, and there's ideational things like the rules of the game in international society, the rules of conduct, uh, if you like, by which states play. And my argument is going to be that by those criteria, not much happened, basically. Um, now, before I, uh, before I get into that, and I will end by saying something about Keynes, of course, because that's why we're here. Um, before I get into that, I think... Uh, I will concede two points um, about the importance of the First World War. Um, the first one is that it changed the balance between the fear of defeat and the fear of war. Right? First World War was a seriously horrendous event. It cost a lot in terms of money uh, and lives and material destruction uh, and all of that. And it basically scared the hell out of everybody because it was out of control for four or five years. And afterwards, there was a reaction against this. It was, as, uh, as I think uh, uh, David said, um, it was advertised as the war to end war. Right? No, it didn't, uh, but it was advertised in that way. And only that could justify the kind of horrendous cost of it. So that was a fairly big consequence that did roll on um, down uh, uh, through the years. It affected the interwar years quite a lot, um, and it became uh, manifest when nuclear weapons uh, came out of the scene after the Second World War, and then the fear of war really did begin to outweigh uh, the fear of defeat. So this was a fairly big consequence, but it was a consequence mainly in the Anglosphere, and since most of us live in the Anglosphere, that feels like the world, um, and therefore it's a tad on the Eurocentric side, perhaps, or just even more narrowly the Anglosphere-centric side of things. It was there that that big impact was made. The other big impact was, of course, the Russian Revolution. Um, this was the first time that socialism as a political idea got, got hold of a great power. That was a fairly big event. Not huge, because it only lasted uh, 70 or 80 years, but fairly big. Okay? So those two things I'll concede. Uh, uh, but for the rest of it, uh, I'm just not so sure. I think if we look, for example, uh, at the material side of things uh, in the way that, uh, that IR theorists do, basically IR theorists measure the significance of change according to the so-called polarity of the system. Uh, how many of you are IR types here? Gosh, okay. Not Some. Okay. Um, I'll have to be careful with my jargon. All right. The polarity of the system is how many great powers are there in the mm. system. Right? Um, and if you look at the First World War, well, there was a bunch of great powers before the war, and there was a bunch of great powers after <laughs> the war, and they were more or less the same powers. Right? So the system in the jargon remained multipolar. The U.S. had gone up a bit. Britain had gone down a bit. Germany had gone down quite a lot, but not for long. Within 10 years, it was back up there again uh, as, uh, as a great power. So in terms of a polarity change, nothing happened. 
as a consequence of the First World War. Compare that to the Second World War when you get multipolarity collapsing into bipolarity with the two superpowers and international relations have been feeding off that one you know, for 50 years. Uh, so that was a big shift in, in IR theory terms. After the First World War, not. If sticking with the material side of things, if we look even at the kind of military technologies that were available. I was uh, talking to David uh, with this in the green room just before. Really, the First World War was fought with existing weapons. It's actually quite difficult to think of weapon systems that were developed because of the war. Um, tanks, probably the best example, maybe poison gas. Everything else was all the you know, aircraft, submarines, battleships, uh, machine guns, all of that, the rest of the stuff um, uh, with which that war was fought was all there beforehand. Uh, so maybe a bit of acceleration in terms of aircraft development, a bit of acceleration in terms of submarine development, but nothing at all comparable to, say, nuclear weapons at the end of the, uh, of the Second World War, which transformed the military environment by, for the first time, creating, as it were, a surplus capacity of destruction. So not much change there. If we go over to the ideational side and look, in a sense, at the rules of international society, at what I would call uh, the primary institutions of international society, things like sovereignty, uh, uh, the balance of power, diplomacy, etc., uh, etc., et nationalism, um, there's very little change here. Um, and, and particularly, I think, the thing that doesn't change is that going into the First World War, this was a colonial international society. It had states, it had colonies, um, it had empires, uh, it even had intergovernmental organizations. Um, it had, as rules of the game, racism um, and imperialism, all of which were uh, perfectly fine, according to the conventions and understandings of that uh, of that time. And that was true coming out of the First World War as well. Racism was still very much alive and well in the 1930s, although we don't like to remember it, but it, uh, but it certainly was. Um, imperialism, okay, maybe a few um, anti-colonial movements got a bit of inspiration from the First World War, but we're not talking anything really big here. We're not talking anything like what happened after the Second World War when racism um, and imperialism collapsed as institutions of international society. Now that was a big change. Right? But after the First World War, basically international society chunters along uh, much as it had been before. So no really big changes. Even I think the League of Nations was not that big a change. It was an incremental development on the back of a variety of intergovernmental institutions that had been developing for almost 50 years beforehand, uh, back as far as the, as the 1860s. So no changes really, really there. And I think also not much change, and, and uh, I, I may be disagreeing with Linda here, but not much change in the thinking about economics. Basically, what happened after the war was that they tried to put back together the economic system from before the war, the gold standard and free trade. And this didn't work. Okay? And this brings me to Keynes. Um, how much was Keynes responding to the First World War? Well, some, obviously. Reparations, obviously, was a big 
trigger for him. But if you look a bit deeper, the kinds of things that we think of as Keynesianism, the idea um, of the intervention of the state regulating the economy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, those, those ideas uh, came about because of changes in the basic nature of capitalism that were happening well before the First World War. Um, so I'm thinking here of the organization um, of uh, labor into trade unions um, and the extension of the franchise in, uh, in particular, and also the fact that the labor force was becoming more skilled and therefore better educated. Now, Keynes understood, if, I, if I'm understanding Keynes correctly, Keynes understood that this meant that you could no longer run a gold standard free trade system like the one before the First World War because that system required imposing all of the adjustment costs of deficits and, uh, and recessions and such like onto the societies uh, of the states. And Keynes saw that society and capitalism itself had now developed to a point where that was not politically possible anymore because the workers had the, had the vote, um, and, uh, and they had political organizations, uh, and they, they could therefore resist this kind of thing. Now, that didn't require the First World War. All of that stuff was happening anyway, and you can find economic historians who will argue that the, the gold standard free trade system, uh, the so-called golden age of, uh, of capitalism, wouldn't have lasted all that much longer anyway because of these changes. These were deep structural changes uh, going on in here. And it was those things that, uh, that Keynes was, was addressing. So um, to sum up, <laughs> there are some marginal changes to the distribution of power, nothing to write home about. There are hardly any changes at all to the ideational construction uh, of, of international society. Um, overall, much less of a global impact uh, than the Second World War. Uh, and just to add a parochial note, uh, it's often said in international relations that you know, the discipline was founded in 1919. And that's not true either. But that's another story, and we can argue that uh, some other <laughs> okay. time. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, uh, no, nothing to disagree with there. I, I, I think what we'll do, I, I, I've got a lot of comments I'd like to make myself. I, I wonder, David, I, would you like a quick response to, uh, to Barry, or do you want to hold your fire? You look like you want to hold your fire. Yeah, you look stunned, I have to say, in a state of shock. Well, okay, no, look, I, I, will, I will just say... Just a couple of points. Thank you very much, Barry. Can, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear me at the back? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the obvious riposte is, is that the First World War doesn't exactly cause the Second World War, but is the indispensable precondition for the Second World War. Mm. Um, that's not to say, and I hope that came out from my own presentation, that's not to say that there's a straight line from 1919 to 1939 and 1941. Um, but it is reasonable to say, if you, if you want to run counterfactuals, um, it's very difficult to conceive without the First World War of the Bolsheviks seizing power in Russia, of Mussolini seizing power in Italy, of Hitler seizing power in Germany. You cannot understand, I think, appeasement in Britain and France with looking, without looking at the impact of the First World War on those societies. Um, I don't think you can envisage the Great Depression as being as severe and as having such great impact as it did without the destabilizing effect of the First World War on the, on the Atlantic and Western economies and Central European economies. 
Um, now, if you put all these things together, I think it's a, a plausible argument for saying, as I mentioned before, not that the First World War directly causes and it makes the Second World War inevitable, I wouldn't put it that strongly, but the First World War is the essential precondition for the Second World War, mm. from which, of course, a whole series of further consequences flow, including the, 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 the Cold War and in many ways speeds up decolonization and so on, a whole major inter European integration in many ways too, all of these things follow on from the Second World War. So I think there are good grounds. It's become a kind of historical received wisdom, this, but to say there is a kind, what E.J. Hobsbawm called the short 20th century, a mm. kind of single historical epoch, though a very turbulent one, runs from 1914 to 1991, and maybe after 1991 we're into something different. So, I mean, I think Barry makes a useful point, yeah, and... Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a different way of looking at the First World War, and perhaps we've heard too much during the centenary period of the opposite point of view. But if the essence of the comparison is between the First World War and the Second World War, and to say the Second World War has larger consequences, the Second World War is part of a process that actually, I think, began mm. in 1914. Mm. That's the key point I'd make. I suppose the other thing is, it, okay, it's all right to compare the First World War with the Second World War and says it has larger consequences. If you go in the other direction, are you comparing it with the Crimean War? Are you comparing it with the Boer War? Are you comparing it even with the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars? It seems to me to have bigger consequences than all of those things. Mm. Mm. I, I might add, by way of addition, uh, Barry won't be surprised I'm going to say this. Um, the Soviet Union... Uh, Fred Halliday, an old friend of ideas and a very, very great man at this school for many years, wrote a book on revolutions, which I'm sure many of you may have read. And I think he would have taken the point and, uh, on, the, on the role of the Russian Revolution in changing the world forever. Uh, and I don't think it's just another event. It's not just another minor seismic moment or even a data point. I don't think he's trivialized it. But I think one's got to take that the beginning of a new 20th century really does begin with the existence of, of a Soviet Union. It changes everything forever. You could almost say that indirectly, and again, it's not a direct causal link, as David has indicated, but you could say it's without, without the Soviet Union, without the fear of communism, which was genuine and real, Hitler may never have come to power. It's, it's, it's a feasible argument. Uh, you could say that without the fear of the Soviet Union being there as a presence, as a shadow, overhanging the whole of the West, much of the diplomacy of the interwar period would have been different. After all, appeasement was justified in terms of better keeping a strong Germany than the danger of, of, of the Soviet Union. And I do think the whole creation of what Frey would have called the sixth power, this was his notion of revolutionary states, I think that is transformative in, in, in a pretty dramatic way and a, and a great challenge to the international society of which you talk, Barry, because I, I, I kind of take your arguments on international society very seriously. But nonetheless, this was a challenge to the fundamental notion of what an international society was. They didn't believe in the norms, the balance of power, and all the things that international society, I think, you know, argues about, as Martin White was to do in many of his great works, and uh, later Hedley Ball. The, the second thing I'd say, and again, it's, it gets back a little bit to Linda's point. I mean, and Linda, you may want to come in on this, and I'll, I'll stop very quickly, by the way. I think, the, looking, I'm not an economist, so therefore I talk about economics quite a lot these days. Um, ever since 2008, I feel empowered to talk on economics. You know. um, but nonetheless, even in my reductionist crude understanding of economics, looking at the economic consequences of the war 
as much as the economic consequences of the peace. The, the debt structure, the breakup of Austro-Hungarian Empire, the fragmentation of a central European market, the withdrawal of the Soviet Union from the world economy, the refusal of the Americans to write off the debts, which of course in turn leads backwards to the reparations question. All of those things taken together, plus the enormous dislocations uh, of the First World War, which were just huge on France and on Belgium and a whole bunch of other countries who really never recovered in, in reality from the First World War. I think, again, that's a pretty massive uh, destabilizing factor. The great economist at the LSE, Lionel Robbins, later wrote a book on the origins of the great crisis of the 1930s. Um, and he basically made the point that the origins of the Great Depression, although it's indirect, it's not direct, actually has to be traced back to the consequences of the war and the inability, and I think the inevitable inability of the peacemakers to make a peace. I, this is where, in a way, I just one point on Keynes. I, I think Keynes has written the most fantastic book. And I'm, I've, after all, written a 45 page introduction. I'm not going to write one to a book I don't think is great. Why would I? But on the other hand, I think you know, Keynes, in a sense, is behind, before his time. Hmm. He's making arguments which are, I think, very rational, very true, but the political conditions at the time don't permit the kinds of arguments that he is advancing to be accepted by the politicians, because he's an expert. <laughs> In a way, I kind of think of the contemporary. He's an expert trying to tell the politicians what to do, and the politicians say, I just can't do it. I just can't do what you're advocating. I think there's that. One final point, Linda, do you want to come in, and then we'll open yeah, up. No, We've got I, plenty I, of time for Q&A. Linda. No, I, I, I agree, and um, it's, um, it's great to have you talking about economics. It makes, really, it no. makes sense. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> no, I never get a job in the economics department. I don't know mathematics. You know. Um, but I think just a couple of quick points before we open it yeah. up. I mean, I think um, I agree you know, with what Mick has just said, and I think one of the things, maybe, Barry, that I would stress is um, – I think maybe the kind of, uh, one of the things that made King so great was that he was a public intellectual who engaged the issues of the time. So yes, the economic consequences of the peace was around his views that what was being imposed in economic conditions um, were not going to be sustainable. And of course, historians and I are, and other people are drawing the linkages forward. For Keynes's own thinking, um, when it came to writing the general theory, he was specifically addressing the Great Depression, the Great Recession, and the Keynesian Revolution, and all of the elements of that book, The General Theory, of course, was very specific to the issues of unemployment, as well as to um, to why it is that in the short and medium run, there was a role for the state to directly invest and to spend. But the biggest criticism Keynes faced was actually the debt and the deficit that would come from his government spending. And of course, there were sensitivities around the level of debt, and that is related to the First World War. But of course, these two books look at very uh, different things in that way. But I think the point that perhaps is just worth stressing is that throughout um, Keynes's um, tremendous career, we always talk about the general theory because it changed the economic subject from one in which neoclassical economics was the dominant view of the late 19th century, and that came under severe attack with the Great Depression of the 19th century, known as the Long Depression, which was triggered by the Panic of 1873, and that led to a backlash against globalization, the gilded age of high-income inequality. It led to 
feelings, there was a need for more protectionism, which you really saw come into fruition in the 1930s. There's a very long time lag in terms of some of this effect. And of course, this was all building up. But what the Keynesian revolution did was to change the entire paradigm for thinking about the short and the medium term so that we wouldn't just wait for this Adam Smith's invisible hand is supply and demand of Alfred Marshall to fix the economy, but for government to intervene. So I always think of these as long waves of historical influences, but I think we tend to underestimate the economic consequences of the piece because in relation to the general theory, it didn't change the paradigm, but I think it's strongly there, especially in terms of influencing policy, which is why I wanted to draw it forward and say after World War II, the development the Bretton Woods institutions that Keynes was hugely influential in doing mm. and it stems from his beliefs that what you should have had after World War I was a greater recognition of that quote that I gave you, that by punishing the, the victims or the aggressors, yeah. you were just going to end up mm. damaging yourself mm. economically and psychically. Mm. Okay, I think we've uh, got plenty from the platform. Why don't we open up for... Questions from where the, where the mics? There's a gentleman here, please, in, in the brown. If you could take the microphone, please. Just say who you are. And did I see another hand at the back? Okay, or oh, somebody in the middle there. Could you get the mic to the person in the middle? Get, keep your hand up, please. Could you mind? Yeah, thanks. And then the person, yeah, okay. Okay, so, sir, after you, please, thank you. I just wanted to raise two points. Please. First of all... Could you speak up a bit? Yeah. Because the mic's the first time. First thanks. of all, before the First World War, you had this... In, con, this notion of the concert of Europe. Mm. Concert of Europe, okay. Yeah. And mm. I wanted to, wanted to pursue where, how the foundation of the founding of the League of Nations after the First World War and then the United Nations post-45 mm -hmm. was an incremental leap on the concert of Europe which had uh, failed to, um, to solve the July crisis. Uh, the start of the war. And then secondly, I wanted to explore with the panel uh, something which hasn't been mentioned tonight, which was the introduction of Clause 231. That's the war guilt. That's of the, the war guilt clause in 1919 yep. and how it was a novel feature of the time because there was nothing like that in 1815. Okay, that's great. It's two, two questions, one about the evolution from a Council of Europe through the League to the UN, an evolutionary process, and the one about Clause 231, which is the famous war guilt, which was so controversial. There's somebody in the middle there. Yeah, please. Yes. Hi there. Hi, I'm uh, Eska Walsko, a PhD student at the UCL. Um, I have a question about one of the ideational consequences that is still very much contemporary, that is uh, that of inflation scare, which you could say is a ghost coming from uh, the inflation in Germany in 1923, uh, which was a consequence, uh, yeah. as far as I'm, uh, as far as I know, uh, of the French invasion of the Ruhr district uh, in relation to re the reparation situation. But it seems to me quite ironical that today we have uh, the Germans and the general pub uh, public perception of of the story of inflation in Weimar Germany that it was related to the rise of Hitler. Uh, which was on the back of austerity <laughs> all the time. All the meanwhile, Germany is enforcing an anti-inflationary regime with what has a certain similarity uh, yeah. with, the, with the reparations yeah. in all of Southern Europe. Okay, that's you great. talk about that now? No, no, but the use of inflation as a way of kind of 
ultimately explaining the rise of Hitler ten years later. Good point, maybe pick that up. I'll take one or two other questions, please. Yeah, uh, um, yeah a gentleman in the middle here. Thank you very much. A quick question. Thank you very much. Uh, regarding the preconditions of the Second World War in this way, uh, there is a famous uh, view of Dominic Levens, and when we're speaking about uh, the First World War itself, what was it? It was not a struggle mainly between uh, France and British Empire and Germany. It was a geopolitical struggle within Eastern European subsystem between German powers and Russian Empire for regional hegemony. And in this way, is it reasonable uh, to speak about uh, long-lasting peace treaty and stable uh, solutions for security when uh, Versailles treaty was made against two major and potentially most powerful continental powers? Okay, fine. Uh, one last question to go. Gentleman over here with the white T-shirt, yeah. Sorry, we've only got one mic. LSE's in moment of austerity. Yeah, please. <laughs> we may have two. Yeah, please. I just wanted to pick up on a point that was made by Professor Stevenson about the, the incomprehensibility of defeat in the, in the minds of the German population. And obviously running counterfactuals is, is quite difficult. But if the, uh, the terms imposed on Germany had been economically more lenient as they had been after the Second World War, would that have made another war less likely when you still had an incredibly strong military uh, expansionist militarism yeah. in Germany? Yeah, yes, okay. which was in essence part Keynes' argument in the first place. Uh, why don't we pick up on any of those points and ones already made? Barry, would you like to come in at all at this stage? I think fair for you to have a, a riposte to uh, one or two of the points made. And um, anything you want to pick up from the floor? Yes, I mean, most of it's not to me, but I'll pick up the first question yep. um, uh, explaining the link, as it were, between the Concert of Europe and the League of Nations and the, and the United Nations. I mean, you could easily see this as a consequence of the growing density and interdependence of, of the international system and the, and the global economy, and you can track it uh, right back into the middle of the 19th century when you because of, of growing economic interdependence and increasing world trade and all of that, you need to have more and more interoperability. You need to have more and more rules of the game. You need to have a big development of positive international law in order just to run the show, basically, because otherwise, you know, it's like uh, we, we all agree to drive on the left, as it were, uh, and that's a rule of the road. Uh, so the system needed more rules of the road because it was getting much more busier and heavily trafficked, and you can read that development as a consequence, in a sense, uh, of that general structural background, but mm. that's all I'll say. Mm. Okay, Barry, just on that, Linda, anything? I'll pick up on the inflationary bias. So, yes, um, hyperinflation is very much... I think one of the reasons why you have a very uh, strong anti-inflationary bias even today um, in Germany and it manifests itself um, through um, the setting up even of the European Central Bank, which has an inflation target which is asymmetrical. So inflation in the euro area has to be 2% or below. The inflation target in the UK is one percentage points around, within one, around the two percent target. And so one of the criticisms is that it reduces growth prospects in the euro area because there's always a, 
a tendency to want inflation to be lower, and therefore it is one of the sources um, that we still debate today. And in fact, the restarting of quantitative easing by the ECB, as Mario Draghi, the president's last act, and led to the resignation of the German member of the Executive Council of the ECB. So unhappy is Buba, the Bundesbank, um, around, Jens Weidmann's still there, but around um, this cash injection because they do still have this, this memory of hyperinflation. But I would probably say for an economist, um, this debate around hyperinflation is, to be clear, um, is there because of this history. Um, but hyperinflationary episodes stem from fiscal, not monetary um, roots. So in other words, I just mentioned all the ways it manifests itself today. Um, but if you look at what happened in Weimar Germany as well as other countries, the roots of hyperinflation are actually fiscal. It is around the ability of the state to pay for its debts, to pay for its spending. And it's actually that's what leads to the printing of money, and that's what generates an unsustainable um, amount of uh, cash chasing the same amount of goods and services. So um, that bit of it is still very relevant, but I'm afraid the, man the modern 2019 uh, manifestations of it um, are still very um, apparent, even if, like I said, actually the roots are not, are not quite right um, in terms of monetary versus fiscal. Yeah. David? <laughs> There's several questions. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to deal with them all. I haven't got time, but you know, <laughs> this is which is partly a get-out. But on, on the question raised at the end there about um, the uh, economic implications, that, that, that it, given what we know about Weimar Germany and the continuing importance of military elites and militaristic attitudes, um, isn't it foolish to think that it's enough to apply a combination of economic generosity with security toughness. Um, I think my basic answer to that would be you have to have the security toughness. But the crucial failure in the interwar years is, the, is, is allowing Germany to rearm in the early to mid-1930s. If you're seeking a, a moment where, if you like, the Second World War becomes unavoidable, that's it, given what we know about Hitler's intentions. So I'm not saying that it would have been right simply to be kind to the Germans economically and also to relax on the security front. I'm not saying that. Um, if there is an appropriate combination, and this is a difficult counterfactual because all sorts of things are different after the Second World War, including conditions in Germany itself, particularly in West Germany, are very, very different. Yeah. But if you're going to say, if you want to run a counterfactual, what, what should it have been like? What did they get wrong in 1919? What, what is the kind of model of peace treaty that might have been more lasting? Um, then I would say a, a combination of, of the, the, pretty much like the security provisions that were provided, though the crucial thing, of course, that they, they lost and needed to have was the American guarantee of the British and French. They understood the need for that, and then it collapses when the Senate fails to ratify the, the treaty and, and the League of Nations. So you needed to have that long-term Western alliance. You needed to have continuing long-term Western military commitment and Western troops on the ground in Germany, as happened after 1945. If you have all that in place, and you also have the dis disarmament provisions and the inspection commissions making sure that the disarmament is respected, of course, the disarmament commissions were withdrawn in 1926. Yeah? When you maintain the Rhineland occupation within that framework, mm. then you can move towards economic rehabilitation, which is actually what was done after 1945. Yeah? You have NATO in place 
um, accompanying the Marshall Plan and providing the provisions in which the French can go ahead with the Schuman Plan, and you can move on to move forward with integration. Mm. And, yeah. Um, so that, that's what I'd say, say, say about that. I mean, I could say more about inflation and depression, but may, maybe we can talk about that afterwards. On the, the other point that was made about the run-through from the, from the Concert of Europe to the League of Nations to the United Nations, yeah, there, there, there were definitely was a historical learning process. Um, we know, of course, the, the foundations of the League of Nations intellectually, of course, happened in conjunction with London and Cambridge. It was very much in that kind of axis where it was developed in the United Kingdom, um, at least theoretically, and much more of the covenant, League of Nations covenant actually comes from British thinking than it does come from American thinking, which is not to say that Wilson doesn't provide, Woodrow Wilson doesn't provide the crucial political impetus behind it, which I think otherwise it wouldn't have happened. And, and it isn't very clearly an attempt to build on the apparent failure of the concert of Europe to deal with the crisis of 1914, Though it's a bit glib, actually, to say the concert fails in 14. 1914 presents a challenge to which the concert of Europe would, mm. was, was never designed to meet. Mm. The concert of Europe is a useful piece of machinery if the great powers want it to work. If they don't want it to work, as is the case in 1914, it's, 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 it can't do anything. And in a way, that's the same problem with the League of Nations and the UN, though they try to build in more legal impediments on the, on the exercise of national sovereignty. Yeah. Both the League of Nations and the UN rest on, if they're going to work on great power consensus. Franklin Roosevelt understood that with relation to the UN, and of course the great power consensus, which he wanted, collapses within a year of the end of World War II. I, if I could just pick up one or two quick points. I take, I take, I take everything that David has said about the, the differences between the end of World War I and the end of World War II, the conditions for at least some degree of settlement and, and some degree of equilibrium arises after World War II in ways that I don't think it could have arisen for all the reasons I think Barry also gave after the end of World War I. But I'd also add another factor in to what changes after World War II, and it's the Cold War. I mean, it's quite difficult to imagine the Marshall Plan being supported in the United States without the perceived threat of the Soviet Union now in the middle of Europe, not just the general ideological threat of Bolshevism. You know, scare the hell out of Congress, said Harry Truman. That's what Atchison said. If you want to sell it to the representatives and congressmen of Idaho who don't even know where New York is, you know, then scare the hell out of them. And that's what they did. And in a way, I think the Cold War made an enormous difference to the pursuit of economic policies pursued by the United States. Uh, and I don't think it really happened just because of Bretton Woods or 1944. In fact, remember in 45, the United States basically told the British to go away or we ain't going to give you your money. You know, they, the, the lend lease was cancelled just like that. I think it needed that overwhelming sense of a, of a threat coming then from uh, a Cold War bloc called the Soviet Union to force through economic policies, which proved to be very difficult to implement, I think, after World War I. On the Article 231, I mean, it gets into very... It's not very technical, actually. Basically, it's war guilt. And in a way, Keynes was really, really opposed to that because war guilt leads to reparations. Now, the way Keynes, I think, saw the World War I, and it gets back to the more general question of a society of states, Keynes actually was a society of states person, I think, Barry. I think he was an international society person insofar as I think he believed that Europe was a family. I think he saw it as, a, 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 even used the term civilization, that this was really a family which had had a one family member go wrong. <laughs> 
which was called Germany. <laughs> no, I think that, that made, I'm not trying to trivialise the argument. I think he basically did see, and of course there was a huge admiration for German culture, for German science, for German universities, for German learning. In, in this country, and indeed across much of uh, what we call the known world. You know, the German science, the number of Nobel Prizes won by German scientists, etc., etc., etc. So I think Keynes saw the coming of the war as a tragedy within the family. Uh, and that he, he actually called it a civil war, a European civil war. And so when he comes to thinking of the punishment, which is understandably being meted out to Germany, understandably, but I think probably wrong, he kind of says, well, look, you don't punish a family member. You have to rehabilitate the family member, draw it back, to, to use our terminology, Barry, back into a society of states. And, I, and I don't, I'm not sure in 1919 that was either a possibility or likely to happen. But anyway, those are my own two tuppany points on that one. We can take one or two more very quick questions before we conclude. Um, yeah, I've got two, I've got hand, two hands, one hand gone over here, uh, and the young man over there, please, and the final question over here, a chap in the shirt. Yeah, you got it. Keep your hand up. Yes, please. Thank Last you very much for your fascinating uh, talk. I wanted to ask, we have a perception of the German economy as a remarkably strong, modern, well-oiled machine. However, Professor Adam Tooze argued in his book quite persuasively that it was the weakness rather than the strength of the German economy which ultimately led to the tragic events at the end of the interwar period and the beginning of the Second World War. To what extent is uh, that perspective valid? Can we argue that it was the weakness or the failures of the in, German In what economy? period are you talking about? The, 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 the interwar period specifically. In general, okay. It's weakness, not strength, which is the problem, yeah. And over here, yeah, last question, thanks. Um, so with all this talk about the lack of significance of the First World War. One of my big takeaways from Margaret Macmillan's Paris 1919 book yes. was it, the Versailles Treaty being the beginning of, of the use of self-determination and sort of trying to make a treaty that would prevent war. Now, obviously that failed, but what do you think about that, the significance of that as a, a beginning towards moving towards reconciliation with self-determination? I've got quite strong views on that, by the way, but uh, let, let me just quickly come in and then ask other people to come in. I, I think self-determination was a liberal principle. It was a decent principle. It was a good principle. It was almost inevitable because the Austro-Hungarian Empire was going to fragment anyway. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, I think, was almost inevitably going to fragment anyway. And anyway, self-determination was a useful weapon of war. To, to weaken the enemy at, at the back. I mean, and I think there was a strategic aspect of self-determination. Whether it laid the foundation of stability in Europe is another big question. And it seems to me there is a fundamental, this is my own take on it, take it or leave it, but I think there's a fundamental contradiction between what I call, if you like, the correctness or the rightness as a liberal political principle of self-determination. Everybody wants their own country, let's be perfectly honest, and its consequences. And I think its consequences were deeply destabilizing. That's my overall, my overall, my overall take on that. But I'll leave other questions and other people to pick it up. David, why don't you go first? I think... What Wilson said, sorry, Wilson and national self-determination are, are misunderstood, actually. Yes. He, he, doesn't use the, he doesn't use the phrase. Um, it's not in the 14 points. Um, you can sort of read it implicitly in some of the other speeches that he makes in 1918. Um, what he was much more interested in, I think, he, is, is the idea of democratic peace, which I know has a lot of resonance in international relations theory. 
um, the importance of spreading democracy. That was, that was the best safeguard of peace, rather than necessarily lining up territory, territory with ethnicity. He, he knew that was difficult. Insofar as he was committed to trying to implement it, it was primarily in Europe rather than mm. overseas, and that's mm. another, another key point to make. If you actually look at the way in which the Treaty of Versailles operates, um, it's not really true that national self-determination is the guiding principle. What's in, what's, what is the key principle is limitation on sovereignty. Um, and it's particularly apparent in Germany, but the, the settlement with Germany sets the model that's applied to the other defeated countries, that they will not be allowed to rearm unimpeded. Um, there will be continuing surveillance over their um, economic, economic arrangements. Um, they're not allowed complete tariff freedom, for example. The new countries that are formed in Eastern Europe, Poland obviously a classic example, there is international surveillance over their treatment of minorities. If you, look, if you look carefully at the, the, the way in which the peace settlement operates, it actually envisages a, the, the victor powers creating a system of limited sovereignty mm. for the defeated countries, but also for the new nations. You could also apply that just very quickly on the minorities treaties. Yes. I mean, the minorities was an imposition by great powers on the new powers, on the new states. Mm. And they're basically telling Poland, Czechoslovakia and others, you have minorities and we don't trust you with those minorities and we're going to make sure that you know the way you treat those minorities is going to be determined by great powers. It is a great power piece I think in, in, in fundamentals I think. Anyway, uh, Linda over to you. I, I think I've already said my bit about, um, but you wanted to come actually David on the inflation deflation. I was going to suggest that you take that question as well. Uh, well, okay. I mean, I, I can. Do, I agree with uh, the two. That, that was in relation to, to an, an earlier question. But the, this, this was the question: whether it's actually true that the German hyperinflation of 1923 is, is responsible for the rise of Hitler. Um, and there's a further chain of causation: do you take the German hyperinflation back to the Treaty of Versailles? Yeah. Yeah, but, but point point one with this: the hyperinflation is is, is very likely. Uh, or the, fr from the way in which the war is financed in Germany, particularly given that Germany loses the war. Um, but secondly, the actual thing that triggers the hyperinflation of 1923 is not directly the reparations provisions, but it's the German resistance to the reparations provisions generated by the German resistance of the French and Belgian occupation of the Ruhr. The Ruhr workers go on strike, passive resistance, the German Weimar government bankrolls the passive resistance. That's how it happens. That's what pushes the German economy into hyperinflation. Um, it is also correct to say that the hyperinflation doesn't actually generate the rise of the Nazis. As late, I mean, yes, of course, there's the Munich Putsch in November 1923. That's not a success. As late as 1928, the Nazi party is getting less than 2.5% of the vote. It's, it's a marginal splinter party. The key Nazi breakthrough comes in Germany at the time, under the impact of the Depression. That's well known and the rise in unemployment. But even that is not as simple as it first appears. It's not that the people who are thrown out of work all vote for Hitler. Some of them do, yes. But the big thing that's happening, if you look at the pattern of support for the political parties in the Weimar Republic in the elections of 1930 and 1932, is the collapse of support in Protestant Germany for the liberal and conservative parties, for the centre and for the right. And what's actually taking place is a polarisation with people moving from those parties to support the Nazis because of fear of communism, because on the other side what's happened is that the socialist vote is crumbling in face of the communists who are taking a revolutionary line. Uh, so it's quite a complex political readjustment that's taking place. And, of course, if you go back 
if you go back far enough, you can look at why Germany is hit so hard by the Depression. This is partly because of the Dawes plan and the Young plan and the interim solution that's been found, very unstable solution that's found to the reparations problem in the mid-1920s. But it's a convoluted path, and it's not, not correct to say mm. clearly that there's a link between... There's, there's no direct link between the German hyperinflation and the rise of the Nazis. The, the key link is with the, the rise of the Nazis and the, and the economic depression and deflation. Thanks very much, David. Uh, Barry, any final comments? Any uh, yeah, I think on that first question, there's another way of looking at that, which is, of course, not the absolute strength of the German economy, but the relative strength of the German economy, because the Germans were always looking at Russia. How fast is Russia developing? Do we have a window of opportunity to beat them before they become too strong? Um, so I think that would be one rather big geopolitical way of thinking about, uh, about this. And, and that gives me a segue to, to, to sort of come back on Mick when you, when you said that, uh, I know you're an old revolutionary, Mick, but uh, and old, sympathetic the right to word. these things. The, uh, uh, well, you said that uh, Russia, Soviet Russia, uh, posed a problem for international society. Um, but in fact, I, I'd rather go along with, with David Armstrong on this, that basically these revolutionary states are always and quite quickly swallowed back into international society. So how long does it take before you've got socialism in one country? You know, how long does it take before Stalin is playing balance of power politics better than anyone else in, uh, in, in Europe and using diplomacy and, you know, Trotsky doesn't get to shut down the foreign ministry and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is a two-way street here. Okay. I think we've got much to debate, but it's <laughs> 10 past eight. Um, but anyway, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you all for coming along tonight and uh, asking some great questions and having a great debate in the great LSE tradition. I'd like to thank all of my speakers here tonight. Again, Margaret sends her deep apologies for not being here tonight. She's actually not very well at all. And last but by no means least, John Maynard Coates. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to make any money out of this, but I will be outside be signing it if you want to sign it. Whether it adds any value to the book, I'm not sure, but nonetheless, please. And again, thank you all for coming along and put our hands together and say thank you.